Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guys to explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. In honor of the state's 200th birthday, our Missouri will feature a series throughout 2021 entitled Bicentennial Book Club, which discusses award-winning publications that detail the state's diverse history, as well as the stories behind the stories featured in their pages. Our guest today is Allison Clark Efford. She holds a PhD in history from Ohio State University and presently serves as an associate professor of history at Marquette University. She's the author of German Immigrants, Race, and Citizenship in the Civil War Era, and the co-editor of the forthcoming Radical Relationships. Welcome to our Missouri, Allison. Well, thank you. Now, as we're looking at your, at your book project there, take us through the origins, really, of the project and how that came to be. Well, I decided to look at how German immigrants influenced the trajectory of Black rights in the 19th century, I guess for a few reasons. Um, one, I would say, was self-interested. Um, I am a white immigrant to the United States, and I am really interested in how white immigrants engage with the dynamics of race um, in the United States. And there's been um, work on the Irish. There's been some work on um, German-American Republican leaders, um, but I wanted to look at that question in a broader way, bringing in a greater range of um, immigrants, of German immigrants, and I would say I spoke German. It's easy to say new things about U.S. history when you just look at sources that are in languages other than English, and the Civil War and Reconstruction is obviously this period with such drama, um, with the end of slavery and African-Americans um, fighting for constitutional rights and the constitutional amendments that follow during um, Reconstruction. Now, as you're kind of taking this project on, obviously you have to look through source material, you have to you know, visit archives and really kind of get an understanding of, of who these people were, what culture they lived through. So what, where are you going in terms of historic sites? What, what papers are you going through? What archives are you visiting to kind of develop and, and, and write out this project? You're exactly right. I wanted a really full picture of the German-American community from, I would say, 1854, sort of formation of the Republican Party, this anti-slavery party, um, through to 1877, which is traditionally seen as the end of Reconstruction, when white Northerners sort of gave up. So it was really sort of for that period, um, if it was about German-Americans in um, the Midwest, and I focused on um, Wisconsin and Missouri and Ohio, I would look at it. I didn't read everything exhaustively. Um, there was a lot, of, a lot of religious materials that I didn't look at quite so closely. But I use sort of social history sources, things like the census, maps, voting records, church records, um, descriptions of festivities, as well as more of your traditional political sources where you have 
politicians and leaders discussing the role of German Americans or German Americans themselves um, talking about their politics. So Carl Schurz's papers, which have been uh, microfilmed from the Library of Congress, they were very important. I'd also say German language newspapers, though most of those have not been digitized. They're, they're still microfilmed. Um, but there were so many German language newspapers during this period that you get lots of different German American perspectives um, from them. And I had a great summer doing research in Missouri. Um, I did um, the state archives in Jefferson City had useful things. And then um, the Missouri Historical Society in St. Louis. And of course, the collections at the State Historical Society of Missouri in um, Columbia. So I, I was really looking for everything I could find. Now, here in Missouri, we often think about Germans is living in, in what's called the German Heritage Corridor, which really runs that Missouri River Valley all the way up into St. Louis. But there's a larger German triangle of the United States that encompasses portions of that. So talk about that German triangle and why so many Germans are immigrating to the United States and to that specific area. Yeah, so if we talk about the German triangle, um, we're talking about the area that's encompassed, if you drew a triangle um, from Cincinnati to St. Louis um, to Milwaukee. And of course, there are large cities within that triangle. There's Indianapolis, there's Chicago, and then there's a lot of, there are a lot of smaller towns and farm area. Obviously, there are German immigrants sort of um, who spread out from around the edges of, of that triangle. And that would include sort of the areas within Missouri. But it's a good sort of frame of reference for understanding part of the country where German immigrants were particularly densely settled and influential. So there were more immigrants living in New York City or in um, Philadelphia than there were in these Midwestern cities, if you look at numbers. But German immigrants were coming in as um, these Midwestern cities were growing and they were a high proportion of the population. So they were particularly influential in the Midwest. And the why, the why did so many German immigrants um, settle in this area is really a matter of timing. People were leaving German Europe at the same time their opportunities were opening up in the United States. So if you go back to um, Europe, where you still don't have a united Germany, you have a lot of German states. In the 1840s, they were facing a significance of agricultural and economic crisis. And that crisis feeds into the unrest that leads to the revolutions of 1848, um, which are a big deal throughout Europe and including in the, the German states. And the revolutions failed, they were suppressed. And on after that suppression, that overthrow of the revolutions of 1848, some people need to leave because they really need to leave or they'll be imprisoned for their political activity associated with the revolutions. Other people leave because their hope that their lives could have gotten better in Europe was dashed. So the end of the 1840s, you have a lot of Germans who are looking to emigrate, to leave. And at that time, the Midwest 
what we call the Midwest of the, of the United States, uh, is coming firmly under the control of the United States. Some of it had come under US control much earlier, but this is a time when the United States has finally succeeded in expelling, violently expelling, the native population of the area. So white immigrants had these economic opportunities getting in on that, that sort of project of building the United States as, as a colonial nation that was taking over from the inhabitants who were already there. Now, you mentioned uh, earlier about you know, major source material being, being German language newspapers. And certainly as these German immigrants are arriving in the United States, you know, there is some elements of assimilation, but there's also a, a holding tight to elements of heritage and culture as well. So in looking at German identity and, and German culture in the United States, tell us about the terminology that, that, that comes up in the book, German language public sphere. What, it, what do you define that as? Let me start by saying it is difficult to pin down German Americans as a group. <laughs> they are divided. They're divided by, by class and by wealth, sort of by occupation. They're coming from different German states in Europe. So they're coming from Prussia, from Bavaria, from the Rhineland area. About a third are Catholic um, or were raised Catholic, so anomaly Catholic. Most of the rest were um, Lutheran or, um, or other Reformed Protestants. Perhaps during the 19th century, about 4% Jewish. And then when they come to the US, so there's, there's more diversity. It's diversity in where they settle, what the local conditions are. Um, there's diversity in how they identify politically. So there's a joke in the 19th century that wherever um, four Germans are gathered, you will find five different opinions. So I was coming into this project dealing with the diversity of the German American community and the fact that you sort of alluded to that many of them are uh, moving into the mainstream and learning English. And so in order to define German Americans as a group, I looked at the German language public sphere, the argument, the discussions that were going on within German language newspapers at German language public events. So we may not be able to pinpoint one German American opinion, but we can look at the arguments within this German language public sphere, this public sphere that is somewhat segmented from the rest of US culture and politics by the fact that it is going on within the German language. Now, as uh, the German immigrants are coming into the United States, uh, you know, they certainly are going to get involved in politics. Uh, this is certainly something very important that no doubt has, has a history going back to their own time back in Europe. So, Tell us a little about this concept of liberal nationalism in the 19th century and, and how did that impact Germans as they were looking to find homes in the various political parties of the United States? Great question and a tough question. If we go back to the revolutions of 1848, you see diversity, this is going to be a theme, like some of the participants in the revolutions of 1848 were radical. Karl Marx um, has, has some involvement. 
Um, and some were relatively conservative. They just wanted to reform the existing monarchical governments in the different um, German states. But um, the common denominator was this idea of liberal nationalism, the idea that they believed, the 48ers, that the energy in the movement was that if they could unite Germany, unite all these little German states and bring them together and create a new country, a Germany as a country, that that would come along with individual rights. Right? So the liberalism is sort of the individual rights side of things. They looked at the existing states, the existing states led by kings and princes and dukes, and they said, look, these are illiberal, they are conservative, they have traditional privileges, um, they are sort of feudal, things were moving on in Europe by this time, but that sort of imagery of them being feudal hung around still. So they're thinking that we, this is my, putting on my 48 er hat here, if we can unite Germany, we can override those traditional privileges and we can have individual rights like male voting, political freedoms to say what you wanted to say, so political freedoms, publishing freedoms, and also sort of a, they assumed that a more equitable distribution of resources would come along with that. So it's the 48ers sort of see those two things as inextricably com combined, the, um, the nationalism side and the um, liberalism side. So that's the that's the German <laughs> that's the German background. When we get a lot of 48ers, right, refugees from the revolutions of 1848 showing up in the United States in the 1850s, they are sort of looking, they have a lot of revolutionary energy. They are excited about politics. They believe they have something to offer. And they're coming into this situation in the United States where the controversy over the institution of slavery is picking up as a national political um, issue. So if you are one of these ambitious young men or women, there were some politically active women in this group, um, who are coming into the United States and you look at the political scene, to you, slavery seems like feudalism. And again, it's a very sort of simplistic um, comparison, but they are saying, well, that's the sort of thing we were fighting against, these old entrenched privileges that override individual rights. That's what we were fighting against in Europe. So the new anti-slavery party, the Republican Party, which forms in 1854, is very appealing. And many German Americans were in on the ground floor organizing um, the Republican Party. And especially in Missouri, um, German Americans form this huge part of the Republican Party as it's, as it's coming up. Nationwide, I would say German immigrants still split about 50-50, Democrat, um, Republican. Traditionally, immigrants had been Democrats because Democrats had supported their, their beer drinking, um, the sort of the culture, um, and had, had been more supportive of Catholicism. So there are a lot of immigrants that do actually stay with the Democratic Party, but you have a lot of energy with these 
German-American 48ers supporting um, the Republican Party, especially in the Midwest. With that discussion there of, of kind of tying back to earlier European experiences and bringing that forward into the United States, you know, how did the subject just simply of their own immigration and their development into citizens in the United States, that formation, how did that influence how they viewed the citizenship opportunities and rights of other groups within the United States, especially, you know, enslaved people and even formerly enslaved people? Male immigrants from Europe um, really personified this idea that you could acquire U.S. citizenship and that U.S. citizenship wasn't about your background. It was about your allegiance to a set of ideas and therefore that background, um, race and ethnicity should not be so important. You could go through the process of naturalization, become a US citizen, and that involved saying that you were committed um, to the United States and you could gain the rights of native-born citizens um, in this way. Of course, that's a bit, <laughs> um, that obscures a much more complicated picture. It might have been possible for men coming in from Europe to gain these privileges, but you have many native-born um, people in the 1850s who cannot vote, who have a second-class citizenship, obviously people who are enslaved, um, women who, who can't vote and have their legal rights limited in various ways, Asian-Americans, um, free Black Amer Americans, um, Native Americans. So it's a bit of a charade in some ways that this model of naturalization tells you the essence of US citizenship, but it was a really important charade to, to German immigrants, this, this idea that, look, we have um, become US citizens, that's the true meaning of US citizenship. And when they started listening to African-Americans who were fighting for their own rights, fighting for the end of slavery and fighting for other um, rights in, in public, they started to draw parallels uh, between their own experience and that of African-Americans. Sometimes I would say those parallels were somewhat ridiculous and perhaps even harmful because um, German immigrants were saying, oh yes, we know about discrimination. We face discrimination too. We can identify with you. When obviously an objective analysis would say that German immigrants didn't face anything near the obstacles um, that black Americans faced. Um, so it, in some ways it's, it's problematic, but it is quite important politically in the 1850s and the 1860s. And German immigrants, despite this sort of variety among German immigrants and what exactly they believed, they had this powerful position to say, hey, we're new immigrants, we know about citizenship, and to persuade other Americans that um, African Americans should have access to US citizenship too. Now, a key element of, of citizenship certainly is, is voting rights, uh, suffrage, and you, and you touched on the idea there of, of not 
everyone certainly having full suffrage rights. Looking at, at these German Americans, and certainly not not an incomplete monolith, certainly, but you know, why does it seem seem like there was a singular support for male suffrage versus universal suffrage? And how does the, even that support begin to transition and dwindle as time goes on? I would say those are two different different questions. They have sort of interestingly different stories. German Americans as a group never were enthusiastic about women's suffrage. There are exceptions, of course, um, and German American socialists tended to be more supportive of women's suffrage. But generally, German American leaders, regardless of sort of party or um, religion, associated the women's rights movement with temperance and prohibition. And they didn't want to let go of their beer. And so there was sort of this antipathy that develops early on between the women's suffrage movement and German Americans as, as a group. In response, you see some leaders like Elizabeth Cady Stanton saying really quite dismissive things about immigrants, because from her perspective, it didn't seem fair that people could, white men from Europe could just come in and could, could vote. So in some states, in, in um, Wisconsin, where I live, they could vote even before they were citizens. So the, the leaders like Stanton were dismissive of immigrants. You build this sort of mutual antipathy builds up, and German immigrants are never keen on um, women's voting. The question of declining interest in um, Black men's voting rights is interesting um, too. Uh, it's, it's sort of separate. In some ways you could say it was overdetermined. There are a lot of um, people in the states who that had seceded and even in um, states like Missouri which had not seceded but had had slavery where there are there is stiff white opposition to um, black voting rights um, and a lot of violence. So there was a lot of opposition. Um, it, it, would, it's, it would have taken a whole lot of um, energy to keep protecting Black voting rights as the 1860s and 1870s go on. Obviously, if, if it hadn't been for racism, if there were sort of other, vote, uh, other groups of Americans who were being disfranchised um, by violence, I think it would have been a different story. But there's that dynamic in the end of Reconstruction where white Northerners are faced with what are we going to do to, to keep protecting Black voting rights where most African Americans live, which is still um, in Southern states. And German Americans are among those white Northerners and white Missourians. I don't know if in this context, the white Missourians would, would be um, seen as white Northerners or white Southerners, who there are German Americans among those white Americans who initially um, are supportive of black rights and give up on them um, during the 1870s. I think it's really interesting to look at the change of energy in the German-American community with the Franco-Prussian War and German unification. In um, 1870, Prussia 
leads a war against France and consolidates the other German states around it. And then the next year you have the formation of a united German empire. A lot of people who had been in the revolutions of 1848 were excited about this new German empire. They didn't know exactly what it would involve, but they said, yes, German unification, this is what we were all about. And they know that it's being led by Bismarck, who is not liberal, um, who is conservative, but their excitement for the potential um, for, for what this new Germany is going to be sort of overrides some of their misgivings. And along with that new Germany comes a new German nationalism that is more interested in the biological superiority of Germans. And it sort of washes away the spirit of 1848 and replaces it with a more triumphantist sense of what it is to be um, German and to be German-American. I want to be clear, I don't think that it's sort of a straight path from there to Hitler. This is something that German-Americans are going through that sort of reinforces some of the race dynamics within um, the United States. Uh, but I still think it is important and it connects what's going on in the United States to what's going on um, in Europe. Now, what new projects are you, are you currently working on? I am working on a book on um, immigrant emotions and suicide. So I am going in a slightly different direction um, there. Um, although it was a topic that was sort of sparked off by reading all these German language newspapers and seeing how they talked about suicide and its significance among the immigrant population. But I would also like to mention a book that I have co-edited with my um, colleague Victoria Bilich at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Our book is just going to be available um, in, the, in the next few weeks, um, and it is really related to my first book. It's called Radical Relationships, and it is an edited collection of letters um, that trace the, a really sort of remarkable relationship between a German immigrant woman, Matilda Francisca Arnica, and a Yankee abolitionist woman. And the, these letters cover from 1859 to um, 1865, so really the Civil War years. And they deal with some Civil War issues, um, but centrally they examine the meaning of the relationship between these two women. Um, it was a very intense friendship. Um, and they lived together for some of this time. So it's a romantic friendship, according to the 19th century um, terminology. And the, these letters allow us to explore the meaning of that. The letters also touch on um, Matilda's husband, Fritz. He was involved in this really sort of farcical court-martial um, when he was serving in the Union Army. Um, and that, that side of the story has some um, Missouri um, connections. And then there's also the rape trial of Mary's husband, who was a famous abolitionist in Milwaukee. So it's a, it's a book that I, I think it should be a movie. Uh, it has a sort of really dramatic um, storyline. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast, Allison. 
Thank you very much, Sean. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. Thank you.